So good morning. My, I am Charlie Savage. Uh, I'm a reporter at the New York Times. And uh, it's a great honor to have been invited to moderate this uh, excellent panel. Uh, we were asked to sort of move past speaker bios fast because it's in the program and we can get right into the substance. Uh, but uh, I've been covering uh, surveillance stuff along with other national security legal policy matters for some years. And of course, in the last year and a half after the Snowden leaks, this has been surveillance has been sort of the front and center issue in this sort of theme of post 9-11 uh, legal policy. Uh, and so for most of that discussion, we have been focusing, at least in this country, primarily on FISA, the Foreign, surveillance, uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and its reforms in 2008, and what that means in practice. And sort of lost on the edges of the discussion from an American's perspective was what about the other half of surveillance activity? Surveillance that, to simplify just a little bit, takes place outside of the United States. Uh, and that's what the subject is of this panel today. And so obviously a lot of people in this room are already sort of subject matter experts on this. So forgive me if I briefly summarize this in a way that's familiar to you, but just to sort of lay a groundwork so everyone knows where we're coming from. In 1978, when Congress enacted FISA, it kind of divided the world into two places. Uh, there was here and there was over there. And here, a uh, collection from a wire on US soil was a going to become a heavily regulated uh, sort of surveillance. To, to only, uh, you had to get a warrant from a court. You could only target specific people who met certain standards. There was elaborate rules established by Congress overseen by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court for what could happen for, to the information that was gathered that way. But Congress left surveillance that took place from a wire outside of US soil almost entirely, and initially entirely, unregulated for the purpose of national security uh, gathering. There was, it was sort of like Wild West. The executive branch was free to continue doing uh, whatever it wanted to abroad. Uh, and so the executive branch regulated itself. And this came to be known as Executive Order 12333, uh, which regulates not just surveillance, but all kinds of national security activities by agencies ranging from the NSA to the CIA, especially when they are operating abroad. And in this whole conversation for the past year, we have, as I've said, focused mainly on FISA and not 12333. But there's sort of a growing awareness that this is, FISA is only half the equation. In fact, it may only be 5% of the equation because so much more uh, in terms of volume uh, of collection activity takes place under 12333 rules. And so we're sort of coming to a greater focus on we should be thinking about that too. Is this the system we want? Uh, is there room for reform? Is it possible to reform or not? So in many ways, even though the uh, one system is regulated by all three branches of Congress and the other uh, of the United States government and the 12333 is regulated by only the executive branch, uh, the rules are quite similar. The rules for handling information that is gathered uh, are about the same in terms of when you, especially when Americans' conversations are picked up, when you have to delete them, what you can use them for, what you can't use them for. And in fact, in some ways, the rules are stricter in the 12333 world. Uh, we were talking about backdoor searches and whether there should be uh, a warrant required uh, before the government can root through already gathered information. And it turns out in 12333 world, the attorney general, not a court, but the attorney general has to approve the searching for an American's name, which is not true in FISA information world, and the government keeps trying to push away proposals that they get a warrant 
for, because of a probable cause finding for FISA information. But there's one way in which 12333 rules are dramatically different than FISA rules. FISA rules require targeted surveillance. You can, you know, you can fight about whether a warrant should be required or not or what should happen to this information. But at the end of the day, when the government is surveilling on US soil with very minor exceptions, maybe not minor, but put that aside, uh, it has to be going after a specific account. It's looking for this phone number. It's looking for this email address. It's not looking for the whole haystack, or it's not gathering the whole haystack. That limit is not required under 12333 world. Outside the United States, the NSA is permitted to engage in bulk content collection. It's essentially allowed to vacuum the content of everything that's passing a wire that it's sitting on and store it all and then root through it afterwards to figure out what to do with it when these, some of these rules start to apply. And from a security state perspective, you can understand why that's a really interesting tool. It allows them to use techniques like keyword searching and so forth through this heap to come up with targets that they had not known existed, to come up with people that they didn't know already they should be targeting. But it also has tremendous implications for privacy because all kinds of innocent people's communications who have no connection whatsoever to someone who might be a foreign intelligence target are getting their conversations sucked in indiscriminately as well and stored by the government. And so as just, uh, Julian was saying at the beginning, this system of sort of heavily regulations for stuff that happens here and, um, and Wild West for something that happens abroad was premised on a situation in which uh, basically domestic communications were only found here and foreign communications were largely found there. And so the place where there was the greatest potential for abuse from an American's perspective was going to have all these extra rules and privacy protections. And the place where there wasn't going to be a lot of domestic data but there was the rich hunting grounds for foreign intelligence would be the the security state would have a freer hand. And the problem is that because of the revolution in uh, communications technology, because of fiber optic and because of the internet and because of webmail and mirrored servers and so forth, the premise behind this system of regulation has broken down. A lot of foreign information was now found and most easily collectible on US soil. And a lot of domestic information is now found abroad where these wild rules apply. So in, in, as part of the original Stellar Wind program, which gets regulated and normalized finally in the FISA Amendments Act, the security state has sort of solved its half of this problem, right? It's, it's relieved itself of the need to get warrants when it's collecting on foreign targets but from inside the United States. The other half, though, of this equation sort of remains untouched or barely touched, which is from the individual rights, from the privacy perspective, stuff that was supposed to be heavily regulated and protected is no longer heavily regulated and protected if it's captured abroad. And because of this technique that's allowed abroad of bulk content collection, uh, it, it is possible that huge amounts of American domestic data might be indiscriminately sucked in without the NSA targeting anyone. And sort of hanging over this is a somewhat of a mystery of how much this is actually happening. One of the most interesting Snowden revelations uh, to run in the Washington Post was the fact that a year, and a half, two years ago now, it turned out the NSA had, through its partner in, in GCHQ, was sitting on the data links between Yahoo and Google's overseas data centers where they stored backups of their user data and vacuuming in bulk content uh, at a clip of something like you know, tens of millions of records a month. And after that, those companies have started encrypting those internal leak links. And we don't know if that was sort of a one-off event or 
a sort of regular practice that we just saw a glimpse of. But this sort of cloud of how much is this happening and should the rules be changed to account for this technological revolution that has created a way to get around the structure that the original FISA was premised on uh, remains a question of tremendous interest. And so the first person that we're going to talk about to, with this today is John Tai. Uh, John was the uh, head of the Internet Freedom section at the State Department uh, before the Snowden leaks. He's a Yale Law School graduate, and uh, he started to become, well, John, tell us, how did you start to become worried about overseas-based 12333 collection and what happened next before Snowden? Sure. So before Snowden, uh, my job was to promote Internet freedom, both freedom of expression, assembly, association, but also privacy rights around the world. There's human rights instruments that touch on this. Uh, so I was negotiating in the UN Human Rights Council, uh, you know, meeting with China, things like that. Uh, the, we knew that privacy rights were tough for the U.S. government. So the U.S. government is very strong on freedom of expression, um, privacy less so. And so when we go abroad, it's actually harder for us to speak clearly on privacy rights. Um, and were so, you being told, when you're writing these speeches and so forth, focus on the one, not the other? Yes, not in so many words, but it was like, uh, yes, the, the Clinton speechwriters would, would want to focus on the things that we had really good things to say about, um, things like that. So we, we weren't talking about these privacy rights. So I was looking, I, I of course care about these, I'm looking for ways to sort of incorporate them into our work. Uh, and in fact, there had been a UN report on surveillance technologies that the, basically a UN report about this, and we had to issue a, a response. So my job was actually to go to the interagency, all the different uh, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, others. Uh, and get approval for the response that we were going to have to this uh, to this report, and that was sort of one of the ways. Right before Snowden, I think that was the month before that we were uh, we, we were trying to address this problem, and there was a lot of resistance. I was being told, um, "Let's just avoid talking about this as much as we can." And then Snowden yeah. happens. Yes, and and, and what goes through mm -hmm. your mind? Uh, my first thought was. This is finally happening. I actually wasn't surprised. I knew there was a huge amount of surveillance going on that nobody was talking about. Um, and I, ex I had actually been expecting someone would leak stuff like that. You knew that because they you were guiding you away from talking about privacy of communications as part of these diplomatic promotions of internet freedom. And, and some uh, intelligence briefings, which I had been sort of, you know, I'm interested in these things, so I'd be asking about this stuff. And did you have access to intelligence briefings before Snowden? On NSA overseas collection? Not, not uh, directly. But after Snowden, you did? Yes. And what did they tell you? Well, I can't talk about classified information here. Uh, but this sort of gets to some of the things you were saying at the beginning. It, it, it's not one half of the equation. That 12333 collection is the vast majority of the collection. There's a huge amount on US persons. Um, so, you know, Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo Mail. Okay, Cupid messages, uh, Twitter messages, Facebook messages, um, you know, uh, Dropbox files, Skype calls, all of this stuff. Uh, Americans should expect that most of their online communications are probably being collected by the NSA. And, and so, you're because of your position, uh, you have a vantage point 
on internal executive branch deliberations about how to respond to Snowden, how to respond to the president's review group recommendations. What did you see? It was a very touchy subject within the bureaucracy. Uh, it was a very small group of people making these, these decisions. Um, one of the things I noticed is that, the, so I actually wrote uh, something that fed into the review group's report uh, about internet freedom. Um, one of the interesting things in that report was uh, this recommendation 12 in the report makes an allusion to 12333 and says, basically, this should be reined in. Um, and I saw inside the administration that, that recommendation was ignored. They were looking for greater restrictions on the use of U.S. person data yes. gathered under 12333. That's right. And when President Obama gave his speech, taking some of these recommendations, he said what about that particular he one? He said nothing. There was no discussion of it ever. And uh, I actually tried to, I saw a copy of the speech the night before, this was January of this year, tried to insert some references to 12333 that Americans would get the same protections uh, abroad, when it's collected abroad as when it's collected under FISA inside the United States. Those did not make it into the speech, and that's when I was They're upset. saying, look at all this reform we're going to do, pay no attention to this recommendation yes. that goes to the core of what may be, by volume, the greatest amount of collection. But yes. So you decide to leave the government, and what do you do before you leave? I filed a complaint. Uh, I first met with my boss. Uh, then I met with the State Department's Inspector General Office. Then with the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. You file whistleblower complaints. Yes. And so and, you're... And then, then eventually with the NSA. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as you're filing these complaints, you know, Snowden's been indicted. I just asked you what yeah. you, told, you were told at those briefings you wouldn't say because it's classified. Are you, just as a side point, you're trying not to get indicted? Correct. And so mm -hmm. what do you do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, I haven't disclosed classified information. So. Right. But you hire a lawyer? Yes, I did. I, I hired actually two lawyers. And, yeah. and you paid a lot of money yes. to them? Over $13,000, yeah. And, uh, and they're advising you about every step of the way to stay within the lines? Yes. All right. So, so uh, you, you've, you talked to the inspector general. They eventually shunt you from the State Department to the NSA inspector general. You're talking to the staff of the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee. And let's go through them one by one. What did the Senate Intelligence Committee respond to you? Well, a lot of that discussion was classified. Uh, my takeaway from it is that um, the oversight mechanisms in place are not sufficient. But uh, before, before we get to the conclusion, okay. you, you provided, when I was writing a story about you, some letters that you'd gotten back. Oh, that's, what did that's the Senate right. Intelligence Committee's letters say? Uh, actually, I, I, so I only got letters from the House and the NSA. I didn't Senate get didn't write back at all. Senate didn't write back at all. Silence. House writes back and says, yeah. what? Uh, thank you for uh, your concern. We've taken the action deemed appropriate. The end. The end. NSA Inspector General writes back and says what? Uh, thank you for your concern. As you noted, you don't know the details of our minimization procedures. That's not all they said. They said you said you don't have, you have no evidence that we're targeting Americans abroad. That's true. Yeah. Is that the issue? Targeting? No, that's not the issue. Bulk collection, incidental collection, is the issue. Yes. So the letter had nothing to do with what the problem is. Correct. And blew you off. Yes. So this, your conclusion is? My conclusion is that everything I've seen, both inside and outside the government, suggests this is an extremely touchy issue. There's a huge amount of collection on US persons. 
It's being shared with foreign governments. It's being shared with the FBI to prosecute Americans. Um, in my view, it's totally, totally outside the bounds of the Constitution. I mean, if you had gone to the founders of this country and said, uh, it's okay if we collect every single communication of every single American and write our own rules for searching it at will to prosecute them, they would say that's not what we meant by the Fourth Amendment. Let me turn to you, Marcy. Uh, so part of the Snowden revelation was that from 2004 to 2011, the FISA court was issuing secret orders permitting a bulk internet metadata collection program that was shut down in late 2011. Uh, and we didn't know about it until two years later because of the Snowden leaks. Um, and you have written a lot about what you think happened as part of that transition and whether the narrative arc there was a beginning, there was a middle, and then there was an end uh, is the right way of thinking about this. Can you briefly lay that out? Sure. Um, and this actually comes not just from the Snowden documents. It also comes from FOIAs uh, for both Section 215 and pen register trap and trace documents that ODNI has released. So um, a lot of this comes from the official orders that went to the FISA court. And Charlie had said that uh, in some ways, 12333 rules are harder than FISA, but for metadata collection, that's not true. Uh, for metadata collection, the FISA court had imposed uh, content. You can only go after it for counterterrorism purposes, had imposed pretty strict dissemination requirements. And in the case of internet metadata, uh, because there's a problem, internet, it's very hard, especially if you're collecting from the telecoms, which is what they did, to collect what is metadata to the telecoms. You're very quickly, if you get anything interesting, you're very quickly getting into what is content to the telecoms, although it might be metadata to, say, Google. And so when this program for the internet metadata was rolled out in 2004, the judge in that case, Colin Kolar Kotele, imposed pretty strict rules about what categories you could collect. Um, and at that point, it wasn't, they weren't getting everything. They were getting just from some circuits. But there were rules about what you could collect and what you could not collect. NSA violated those rules in the first three months of the program. Michael Hayden came out and said, there's no way we're co collecting content. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz said, you know, we didn't mean to do it. We didn't mean to do it. And then 2009, um, Judge Walton, Judge Reggie Walton, starts to learn about problems in the phone dragnet program. And as he learns about those, he says to NSA, hey, why don't you check the internet metadata program as well? And so over the course of 2009, uh, he works very closely. And this is, this is often pointed to as one of the success stories of FISA uh, reigning in the NSA. Um, in the internet metadata context, uh, one of the things Walton did was say, give us an end-to-end -end report. Tell us exactly what's going on. Tell us all of the violations that you're finding, which were numerous that year. Um, and give us your own self uh, report on how you're doing. And sometime around August or September of that year, the NSA submitted its end-to-end -end report. And they said, everything's great. Um, also, in the interim period from 2004, from the first violation until 2009, um, Judge Kolar Kotali had said, you also need to do spot checks. Twice every three months, you need to go in and make sure you're actually only getting what I've told you you can get. So 25 spot checks have happened. 25 spot checks, this end-to-end -end report, everything's great. And then sometime just weeks later, I should also say that uh, Judge Walton had also ordered 
the NSA's IG to do some kind of report, and that was in process. So just weeks later, NSA came back um, and said, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe this, but we every single record that we've collected over the last five years has had those categories that you told us we couldn't collect. Oh my gosh, we had no idea. Um, which wasn't really credible, but... Uh, at that point, DOJ agreed that they were going to shut down the collection of this internet metadata program. And it was shut down from roughly October 30th, 2009, um, until July it was reauthorized and took some time to come back off because it wasn't clear whether the government could legally collect something as metadata in the United States. And there, it took a lot of discussions back and forth to convince Judge Bates to turn it back on in July 2010. Um, but what's really interesting about this is that moment in 2009, right when, uh, right before NSA says, oh my gosh, for five years we've been breaking the rules. They roll out a program, uh, it's called SPCMA, but it's, it's, a, it's a set of special procedures to contact chain on Americans overseas. It, it was first sort of authorized 2007, 2008. What is contact chaining? Contact chaining is, is what they're doing with the metadata. They're saying, here's Anwar Alaki. Let's find out who he's talking to, and let's find out who they're talking to. And they take all of those contacts, dump them into the NSA's pool, and do a lot more analysis on them. So you're analyzing links between people to try to find hidden people of interest who have some indirect connection to a known suspect. And that's the idea. Is you want to find the people in the United States or overseas, which is what they're doing all, with all the 12333 data, you want to find the people who might be terrorists or might be proliferators or might be um, drug cartel members. Um, but again, in the United States, they're only allowed to use it for counterterrorism. Overseas, they're allowed to do this for pretty much any foreign intelligence purpose. Um, so in, in July of 2009, it, like just before the NSA says, kind of confesses that for five years they've been violating the rules, they roll out a program where they do this contact chaining on Americans for their largest for NSA's largest group, so basically the Middle Eastern group, the ones targeting terrorists. That rolls out in July 2009. In July the point is that they rolled it out for being allowed to use 12333 collected data to do precisely to what do the same the thing that they're having all these problems with complying with the rules for FISA collected data. Right. Before then, they could not use Americans' data under 12333 rules for contact chaining. Well, before, before then, they... Before then, they weren't accessing it from the same terminal entry. I mean, they, they legally could, starting in 2008. But they just basically rolled it out. So the same place you'd go on your computer to contact chain on the PRTT, the domestic stuff, you could then say, I want to collect on the stuff overseas. Um, so they just created the function so you could do it from the same desktop access to, to contact chain on Americans overseas. And then in, July, in, in January of 2011, they roll that, that function out to all the functions of NSA, at which point, for the first time, you're contact chaining on Americans um, overseas for purposes that isn't counterterrorism, that's any foreign intelligence purpose. So now you, there's the possibility, and again, this is just, just metadata, 
Um, but you now have the possibility that Americans are, you know, their relationships are being tracked for, for different purposes, for counter, you know, their relationship with Iran, uh, for their relationships in Mexico, whether they're working with cartels. That's January 2011. At the end of 2011 is when NSA says, we're going to shut down the PRTT program. We don't need it anymore. And there's actually... The, the PRTT program is, is the, the FISA-based judge-overseen... Right metadata program, right. that they're having so many problems with, so many headaches with trying to comply with the judicial rules. Right, right, right. So your conclusion is what? Well, even in court filings, the government has said, we can't tell you about this, about the old dead PRTT program, because we're still using the technique. And they said, we're using the technique in two places. We're using it on 702 data, which is the, so they'll go to Google and say, give us the metadata. Um, They'll get content and metadata from Google. But they said, we're also using it under EO 12333. So they've said that they are using it under EO 12333. And we know they have the authority to do it. Well, they certainly use it with foreign data. But the implication is they're starting to use it for American data. And so your conclusion is that this program didn't end when it escaped, it just escaped FISA oversight. If if this is, in fact, what happened, what what happened was um, it was... It was, this was the part of Stellar Wind that was deemed the most problematic in 2004. So it was one of the first things they put under judicial review. They never managed, or at least for five years, didn't manage to do it legally, didn't manage to do it according to the rules of, of the judge. And then when it became too difficult to meet the rules of the judge, to meet the terms of FISA, they just took it overseas and took it to a place where there's far less oversight and where it can be used for far more purposes against Americans. And the question is just how much data, domestic, purely domestic data, are, are they able to feed, acquire under 12333? And this is what we still don't know. Well, right? and I think John just told us some of that. It's a lot, and they misrepresented the significance of ending the FISA program. So uh, Keith Alexander, the former head of the NSA, came out and said, oh, we're ending this. This is great for privacy. We're doing this for civil liberties reasons, when in fact, they simply took it to a much less regulated system. All right. Let me turn to Alex Joel. He's the chief civil liberties and privacy officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and ODNI has been... Uh, kind of the at the fulcrum of responding to the Snowden leaks and organizing uh, both a vast declassification regime, a lot of what we know about the problems with the Internet metadata program we don't know because of Snowden, we know because the government declassified it to its credit. And he's also, and ODNI has also been at the center of interactions with Congress about what uh, the security state basically can live with in terms of USA Freedom Act and what it's trying to resist. And uh, Alex, you, after, uh, after John wrote his op-ed in the Washington Post and then uh, the Times, we did our article on him and so forth, you wrote a fairly lengthy essay in Politico responding to uh, the growing sort of concerns or focus on what are the implications for U.S. person data under 12333. It was called, I think, The Truth About Executive Order 12333. Can you sort of walk the audience through uh, your rebuttal or what it is that you think should be emphasized and what's real and what's not real here. So thank you for that. I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, it's been very interesting. It's nice meeting you, John. Um, and I, as I said in my uh, op-ed piece, I commend you for going through the channels that you went through and for taking the care that you did with classified information. I think that's very important. I wish you had gotten more robust responses to your, uh, to your um, concerns when you raised them inside through the channels. 
And that's something that we, I think we should work on further is that when someone does raise a concern, uh, we take it very seriously. We make sure that that person um, is a, has, has a full opportunity to express uh, everything that's on their mind and that we take the time to explain ourselves to that person. You know, you may or may not have agreed with whatever explanations would have been offered to you at that time, but at least um, I would hope that we would do that in the future for the next person who comes forward. Um, so it, I, won't, I won't go into detail in, the, in terms of the op-ed because it's out there for people to read. But it's in your packet. For generally one speaking, um, you did a great job of summarizing Executive Order 12333 and FISA and how those two protections work. That was really my intent was to try to better explain what Executive Order 12333 is. Uh, you, and the way you described it, it sounds to me like um, the way the description certainly portrays how I feel about it, which is that it is a regulated space. It's regulated with rules that are uh, maybe different but comparable to the rules that we use for FISA collection. Um, so in that sense, I would disagree with your characterization of it as being the Wild West. I know that that's just a, a metaphor. From a separation uh, of powers. From a separation of powers. <laughs> well, um, uh, from that perspective, we do brief Congress. Uh, the Congress is aware. They fund. They authorize our activities. Uh, from my point of view, and I know that we've heard a very, uh, a, a very interesting perspective uh, just before we came on here. But from my point of view, uh, the, the oversight that Congress offers is very granular. I mean, they, they take, they have professional staff, they have clear facilities in the intelligence oversight committees. They, they, they take their duties very seriously. Um, whether or not the results of that oversight are, are ones that the uh, people in this room agree with or other people around around the nation agree with is a different matter. But from our perspective, it feels granular um, to us. Um, so, it, there, it, so there are these two different uh, regimes. There's the executive order regime, which is further implemented through uh, attorney general approved procedures. Um, and as you mentioned, they're similar to, to some of the rules that we have in the FISA world. Um, for, and you alluded to this as well, in order for us to target a US person, an American, a lawful permanent resident at US corporation, or an association substantially composed of uh, lawful permanent residents and American citizens. In order to target that person for surveillance, uh, we have to get a court order under the FISA court. Um, but, if, that, but that doesn't mean in order to collect all their data, you need a court order, because you could do that incidentally under triple three. Right. So, and um, that's right. So there is incidental, that's exactly my next, what I was going to go to next, for the incidental collections. Mm -hmm. Um, we do have rules, and as you pointed out, um, in order to, to, in some ways, they're more restrictive than in FISA. So for uh, us to be able to uh, query the data for using a U.S. person uh, identifier in the content world, um, we do need to get uh, attorney general approval based on probable cause that the person is an agent of a foreign power. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. Since you know, one of the big topics in the surveillance reform area is the, the so-called backdoor search loophole for FISA Amendments Act collected surveillance. So when they have the huge storehouse of stuff they've collected without a warrant but in U.S. soil, then you can search through that stored stuff for other purposes. The FBI can search through it for criminal purposes, and you can search for an American's name or an account, that, and therefore I get private communications that otherwise would require a warrant. And so reformers like Senator Wyden have said we should require a warrant to search through that based on probable cause, and the FBI and the ODNI have strongly resisted that. Since you're already, as just unworkable and cumbersome and so forth, since you're already basically doing that with 12333 storehouse information, why is it 
So isn't that, isn't that a model that shows it can be done? Why is there so much resistance to adding that parallel structure on FISA so, information? So this, um, I think as is alluded to here, the uh, executive order permits broader scope of collection than you would be able to do under FISA. So as a result, you have more information mm -hmm. that could involve incidental communications of Americans. So philosophically, everyone understands that in order to go into that, uh, into a communication that's been collected under Executive Order 12333 uh, to look for information about an American's communication, we have to be very careful about doing it because the aperture at the front end was larger. In our view, the aperture in the FISA world is very narrow. Um, and so you've already made limitations in terms of what is that information that you're collecting, what the oversight and compliance rules are going to be to make sure that we do it properly, how we're going to make, you know, report compliance incidents, as Marcy's pointed out, that, that those have uh, resulted in, in a, uh, when we report a compliance incident to the court, it takes it very seriously and, and there are significant consequences for us. So, I, so, so I understand this reasoning that, you know, the wider the aperture at the front end, the more restrictive the rules need to be on the back end. That's very logical to me. And you know, part of this conversation is, are the rules right? Are, right. Have we calibrated the restrictions at each level correctly? Right. And it seems to me that there's a huge piece of missing information in this public policy debate, which is how much US person information by volume right. is being sucked in incidentally under 12333. And we just don't, we don't know. We have people like John sort of raising hazy alarms, but he can't really say what he knows or what he just suspects or, or even tell us the difference between those two because he'll get prosecuted if he does. And, and so the answer seems to be, it's, uh, you know, maybe the government, the NSA, should do a study of what it has in some, and come up with some kind of representative sampling and so that we could have some data so we know. You know, in the, we looked at 100,000 records and 10 of them were U.S. person communications or 50,000 of them were. Why has there been such resistance to providing an answer to that kind of a question? So um, that's, a, that's a very important point. We're trying to pursue finding ways to answer that question, um, <clears throat> both internally so that we know ourselves and then externally in terms of how we can describe that to the American people. Uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, I see a couple of the staffers here, and they're going to be, Sharon will be on, a, on the panel this afternoon and can describe it in more detail. But they, in their Section 702 report, have made a recommendation to the NSA to do exactly that kind of feasibility study with respect to Section 702 data. And then for uh, Executive Order 12333, I won't predict where the board is going to come out on that, of course, but they're undertaking a similar examination of, of what we do under Executive Order 12333. And um, I imagine that kind of question will come up. I, I can just tell you that in my personal experience, it is, a, it is by no means every American's data that is being captured. Um, but by no stretch of the imagination is that happening. Um, in fact, it's, a, it's, a just a, it's a very small fraction of the internet data. Now, how can we demonstrate that? How can we measure that? How can we show that? In terms of total, the total amount captured is only a small fraction of what goes around the internet. So, you know, can I give you numbers on that? How do we determine whether a communication involves a U.S. person to begin with? I mean, people use uh, American providers. You can't assume that anybody who uses an American provider is an American because often they're not. Um, how do you know that this person's email address relates to an American? It would, it would in some ways involve a, a lot of, uh, in my view, problematically intrusive effort to actually dive into uh, the communications. Now, could we do it in terms of a sample? Are there ways to, are there, are there ways to study that? 
Um, I think that's a, that was a very good recommendation that the PCLOB made. I know others on Congress have, have been calling for similar things. So hopefully we'll be able to make some progress in that area. There's something you said here though that's disingenuous, which is, yes, the total fraction of global internet data that the NSA collects is relatively small, but most of the global internet data is like YouTube videos and Netflix streaming, which the NSA is not targeting, right? That, that makes up actually, in terms of bits of data on the internet, like 80% 80, 80 of the bits, right? So it's only like 15% of global internet traffic that's actually communications traffic. And of that, it's a higher percentage. It's a far higher percentage. It's probably a majority. Um, I have to go back and look at the numbers. I, I would be shocked if yeah. it was that high. Oh, well, so your takeaway is this is a regulated, rule-based environment, even if it's not from the other two branches of government. And, and the, the alarm sounded has been exaggerated from your vantage point in terms of everyone's communications are sitting in the storehouse waiting to be rooted through. Those are your words, not mine, but you know, yeah, generally speaking, yes. I mean, I, I understand that people are concerned, and I understand that technology has changed. There's a lot flowing through the internet. Um, another thing that Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has asked us to take another look at is whether you know, we need to update how these procedures work in light of new technologies. Other people have made that same point. Um, so yes, I think we have to take into account how the, how the world has changed to make sure that when we go out there and do things, we're doing things with appropriate care. I, will, I don't want to forget to also raise an additional point, which is Presidential Policy Directive 28. Um, that was issued in January, and it calls on us to change, all, in other ways, how we deal with uh, signals intelligence activities um, in the global stage. And so that's, we are working very hard to implement those procedures. Um, in there, there are limitations on bulk SIGINT in terms of uh, identifying six purposes for which that bulk SIGINT can be used. Those are pretty broad purposes that you would concede, right? Isn't it, isn't are, it true that, but I mean, six. right, but in the United States, there's one bulk purpose for the phone dragnet, which is counterterrorism, and under that, you can at least aspire to get all the phone records in the United States. So if you have six purposes, you pretty much have a purpose for any geography in the globe. You know, it may not be terrorism in Latin America, but it's going to be counter-narcotics. And once you have that bulk <laughs> argument, you can collect it all, because that's what bulk is. Well, it's a question of what you can what you can it use it for, right? So you can't use it except for those six purposes that are articulated okay. in there. And, and the one that the government keeps stressing is we're not using it for corporate espionage to benefit private sector companies. Correct. Correct. Um, can I just make one yes. last? Just I mean, you may be getting around to this, uh, but but um, but Marcy reminded me that we, that as you know, the administration and the ODNI and the intelligence community supports the USA Freedom Act and the passage of the USA Freedom Act. Um, and that would change uh, how the, the, the bulk uh, authorities are, are being used. Um, and so that... All right, so this, you mean, we, we've talked about an executive order 12333 and now presidential policy directive 28. Both of these are internal to the executive branch. Uh, the president decides to change things and it is done. Uh, but you mentioned at the end the USA Freedom Act, and this sort of raises this broader issue of, of a process issue or of who makes the decision, should this be a, you know, across multiple chunks of our separated powers, should there be court oversight, does Congress have a role to play here? Uh, so let me turn to our final two speakers, uh, Laura Donahue and Ben Wittes. I've asked them to help us move into these normative issues by articulating the arguments for and against whether Congress could as a constitutional matter, 
expand FISA-style regulation to the 12333 space? And if so, whether it should and, if, and how? And so it did so in a very small, uh, you know, non-trivial way in the FISA Amendments Act when it required in statute for the first time the NSA to get a warrant from the FISA court to target a particular American anywhere in the world. Previ before 2008, the NSA could do, do that outside the United States if an American was in Paris or something uh, on the attorney general's say-so. So in, in the FISA Amendments Act, for the first time now, there is some FISA regulation of what the NSA is doing and what was previously what I've characterized as Wild West territory. In the current uh, intelligence bill, there is a section that would uh, require agencies to have minimization rules for how long they can store and when they have to purge and what they can keep and disseminate uh, and for what purposes incidental collected uh, information about Americans in the 12333 space. From what it looks like, that is a status quo amendment as far as the rules that it would impose. But what's interesting about it is that Congress would be telling the executive branch what it must do uh, in this space, which once again is sort of outside the United States and in the sort of commander-in-chief world as far as foreign intelligence base. And we'll see if that survives. And uh, Justin Amash has raised alarms about uh, whether it might amount to implicitly authorizing certain techniques that he's opposed to. So I'm, I've asked, even they may not have fully formed views of their own, but I've asked them to take a pro and con position. Let's start with Laura. Can it and should it uh, be expanded through Congress? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. Uh, so my perspective is that Congress uh, can and should uh, take steps in this direction, not least because Executive Order 12333 does not just regulate overseas activities. It includes targeting of US persons uh, who are foreign powers or agents of their foreign powers and the domestic collection of information. Uh, so let's be very clear about that. The, the, the definition of foreign powers or agents thereof in section 2.1 of 12333. In section 2.4, the executive order refers to collection within the United States of uh, techniques uh, that are directed against uh, US persons in the US, US persons abroad. The NSA last August issued a document acknowledging that while the principal application of the authority is the collection wholly outside it, and, and largely outside, it is also within the United States that Executive Order 12333 collection can occur. And the reason for this is historical. So this order actually originated with an order issued by President Ford, Executive Order 11905, in 1976 in an effort to head off the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that order specifically was a response to the abuses of the 60s and the 70s. And order exempt, that, that order governed uh, double agents agents uh, within the government, it governed mail openings, it governed electronic surveillance, it governed other forms of intelligence gathering, it banned assassination, it banned uh, other types of techniques like experimentation from MKUltra, and it was President Ford trying to address these issues before a statutory provision could be passed. Uh, now he was ultimately unsuccessful in heading that off. President Carter, when he came uh, into office, issued Executive Order 12036, uh, again extending Executive Order 11905. And so by the time the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, it was very clear that there were certain kinds of surveillance that were not included. And if you read the Senate Intelligence Committee reports and the House Intelligence Committee reports, they're very specific that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act does not include physical entry of premises, 
It does not include mail openings. It does not include the use of agents or double agents or other use of devices monitoring individuals within the United States. So it's very, very clear that FISA was only meant to address electronic surveillance. In fact, soon after FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, after erroneously granting orders for physical surveillance and physical entry, then went back. Judge Hart testified before Congress that he had made a mistake by allowing this because FISA did not allow, and all of that was was governed by Executive Order 12333. So we're not just talking about the incidental collection of international communications. We're talking about all other surveillance is regulated or governed, or the framework under which it occurs is 12333. Uh, so that's the first point. So this conversation, while we focused on one, it's actually everything, which is the bulk of how our intelligence agencies collect information. So when you look at that, combined with now the fact that global communications have brought us into a realm where a lot of our communications are picked up internationally. So FISA did not cover international to international discussions. Uh, it did not uh, cover uh, issues where the foreign power um, was targeted overseas, but the United States person was involved in that collection itself. There were a number of areas that weren't covered there. So can Congress now step forward? Well, if we look at what falls within 12333 now, uh, the domestic or international mail opening uh, is included within 12333. Uh, the use of agents or double agents, uh, stored data held on servers overseas or on the iCloud, uh, social network sites like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, public billboards like Twitter and Vine and YouTube, uh, communications-related data like buddy lists or metadata that might come up, uh, communications content that's not actually en route, so draft emails or emails that have already been opened and are then held on a private server, not by an ISP or on a private computer. But what's the hook that connects that to Congress has the constitutional authority to bind the executive's hands? So as Judge Bates uh, recognized in October of 2011, uh, the volume of communications and the extent of the incursions into privacy raise Fourth Amendment concerns with regard to reasonableness. So both within the United States as well as overseas, these issues are raised. Now, under Verdugo Urquidez, which is the key case that has come up, obviously, in the 702 context, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist noted uh, that the collection of information overseas on individuals who have a substantial connection to the United States, including U.S. persons, it must comport with the Fourth Amendment. And so at some point, you have to look at this information and say, look, there is a Fourth Amendment privacy interest that is being implicated. Now, the counter-argument to that is that in the realm of foreign affairs, the president has a broader authority, and thus Congress does not actually have a role to play. Um, and I will note that, uh, that uh, Bob Litt, who's the general counsel, he'll be speaking later today, he has also said that Congress may have a role to play with some aspects of 12333 collection. There are some aspects that I think Congress would have less of a uh, less strong ground to stand on in terms of involving itself in terms of information used, for instance, in the course of military activities. There you might look to the constitutional uh, demarcation of power and commander-in-chief authorities in Article 2 and say the executive branch has a stronger role than Congress. But if we're talking about foreign affairs, the one case on point here, Youngstown, you know, where con Congress and the president share overlapping authorities, and in the collection of foreign affairs, we saw with FISA an opportunity where Congress stepped forward and said, no, there is a fourth 
Amendment protection. The courts had stepped back in U.S. versus U.S. District Court and said if Congress would like to act, there is a Fourth Amendment interest here. Congress did act with FISA. They acted in 1994 with the physical search, in 1998 with pen register trap and trace, again in 2001 uh, looking at business records, and then with the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act Amendments Act. Congress has a role to play with regard to the collection of foreign affairs intelligence when it implicates Fourth Amendment interests of U.S. persons. Let me turn to Ben. What's the counter argument that Congress maybe could get away with what it did in 78 and 94 and so forth, but to, say, ban bulk collection abroad because it's, the risk is now too high that Americans' Fourth Amendment rights will be trammeled? Uh, would be a step too far. The executive would never acquiesce to it, and courts wouldn't force it to. And so, shouldn't, I guess. Right. So I, 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 always, I, I always feel like when I come to Cato, I should start out by saying that, you know, I, I'm here to represent unprincipled statism um, coming from Brookings. But in this case, I actually want to say that with the emphasis uh, following it, that actually statism really is a principle. And this is actually an example of that. So, you know, I, I, I think there's a temptation when we, when, when we all sit here to think about the, the many ways that we can regulate the traditionally unregulated space of foreign espionage. Um, and it's worth just taking a step back and a deep breath and saying, what should Congress have to say about the rules when Barack Obama wants to know what Vladimir Putin is talking about? Um, and if that, question, if that question doesn't give you any pause in response to Charlie's question, then I lose. Um, and, you know, yes, you should regulate every component of every aspect of foreign collection. But if that that's question... A, that's a well, straw man, because this is about collection on U.S. Purchase. No, 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 no. 12333 is centrally not about collection on U.S. persons. 12333 is centrally about overseas collection on non-U.S. persons. As you have all noted, it may have very big incidental collection as an ancillary matter to that that affects U.S. persons, and that raises very substantial policy questions that I'll come to in a minute. But the purpose of 12333 is not to authorize the collection on U.S. persons, authorize collection on U.S. persons. Um, number two, um, it is not the case that when, uh, at least since 1994, it is not the case that when physical collection is done in the United States, it's done under Executive Order 12333. Um, it is done under FISA as amended in 1994 to give the court the authorization to hear physical search requests. Um, so what is 12333? Um, I think it's, it's worth sort of going back to first principles here and saying, in response to the abuses of the 60s and 70s and earlier, Congress came in and said, we want the relationship between the US citizen and permanent resident alien and their government to be conditioned by the rule of statutory law in a way that, that satisfies Fourth Amendment concerns and looks a lot like the process that you use to get a warrant in the criminal law. 
That's where FISA comes from. Now, when it passed FISA, Congress had this problem, which is that the intelligence community came to it and they said, hey, wait a minute, we have all this activity, some of it's domestic, some of it's overseas, some of it you know, involves bulk collection. There was bulk collection actually even then. Um, and so Congress said, okay, what we're gonna do is we're going to lop off the geography of the United States, and later it added to it the people of the United States, and says, in your interactions with them, this is the rules we want you to follow. Now, that left everything else. And somehow you had to regulate everything else. What were the rules gonna be for everything else? And that is what 12333 is. It is the rules for the things that Congress chose not to regulate. One of the reasons Congress chose not to regulate it is that there is a limit to Congress's legislative authority to regulate some of this stuff. I think most people, going back to my Vladimir Putin question, would say that is actually an area of inherent presidential authority. And so Congress chose to regulate certain areas and informed by certain separation of powers norms, chose not to regulate certain areas. Over time, the areas that they have chosen to regulate have expanded. And that's what the FISA Amendments Act is. It took a whole lot of stuff that was, in some people's view, under, under FISA and in some people's view under 12333, and it brought it clearly under a provision of FISA that treated it somewhere halfway in between. So to Laura's point, I would say you have to ask yourself two questions, two big questions. One is, what's the policy goal that you're trying to get by bringing more of 12333 under FISA? And the second is, do you have the authority constitutionally to achieve that policy goal legislatively? I'm gonna leave aside the second question now and focus on the first because I think different people have radically different policy goals in this space and it's worth disaggregating them. One is the issue that John started with, which is, hey, you have this unfettered collection that presupposes that you're going after Vladimir Putin or Al-Qaeda, but actually you're sweeping up a huge volume of US person collection. So the concern there is in a contractarian sense, very similar to the concern that gave rise to the original FISA, right? We want the relationship between the government and US persons to be conditioned by FISA, right? Second, totally different set of concerns, but one you hear very commonly, we haven't heard it today, but you hear it very commonly from people like Glenn Greenwald, from people like the entire country of Germany and the entire country of Brazil, is why this obsession with US persons? We don't wanna be subject to unregulated surveillance either, right? And it turns out that a, a, a whole fabric of US law that's predicated on the idea that we're gonna you know, elevate a set of standards with respect to US persons doesn't happen to be very satisfying to those people who aren't. Um, these two policy instincts would take you in very different directions if you actually tried to craft statutory law with respect to 
what is now regulated by 12333. And I think before you think through or much less assert the constitutionality of those regimes and, and that regime, you have to ask yourself which you're trying to do. I don't doubt that Congress has the constitutional authority to some degree to limit the collection, the incidental collection, or require certain procedures before you search information relevant to US persons. I think it is almost unthinkable to imagine that Congress has the constitutional authority to forbid collection on non-US persons overseas. And so I think the issue, you know, I'll stop there just so I don't drone on forever. But I think, I, think, I think it's really important to start with the question of what the policy objective that you're looking to achieve is. And, and just to put a final point on this before we go into the more free flow of it, let's posit a world where instead of being so unbelievably dysfunctional that it can't tie its shoes, Congress actually is able to, let alone pass the USA Freedom Act or even bring it up for a vote, you know, summon the will and the votes to pass FISA 3.0, and it says, you know what, we're only going to do targeted collection anywhere in the world because the risk of, you know, massive incidental collection of U.S. person communication is too high with bulk. Bulk collection is now banned anywhere in the world, 12333 be damned. Marcy, would that be the end of the story? Can we all just sort of start thinking about drones instead? <laughs> Which collect in the United States under 12333, I think, under on Air Force training. Uh, right. um, the, it, I, I think underlying this whole discussion is this pressure that especially goes back to what happened after Stellar Wind, which is that um, who's going to force the government to follow the law? And that's why the example I brought up earlier, I think, is really important. Um, David Chris, the former assistant attorney general, has said that when they first brought the uh, internet dragnet under the under the review of the FISA court, he suggested that they that the law didn't necessarily support it, but it was worthwhile because it brought it under some kind of oversight. At the beginning of the debate on Protect America Act, which, the predecessor to, to FISA Amendments Act, there was this wonderful hearing with Keith Alexander and Mike McConnell, who was then the director of national intelligence, about whether what they were doing was going to work. And Senators Feingold and Feinstein both asked. So, for example, Feingold says, are there any plans to do any surveillance independent of the FISA statute relating to this subject? Mike McConnell says, none that, none that we're formulating or thinking about currently, but just I just highlight Article 2 is Article 2. So in a different circumstance, I can't speak for the president what he might decide. In other words, at the very beginning of the debate to put Stellar Wind back under the rule of uh, under some kind of congressional law, the intelligence community started by saying, if we don't like what you do, we're going to take it overseas. We're going to take it under, under FISA Amendments Act. At the end of 2007, what we learned is that, I mean, I sort of think of EO-12333 as a handshake between Congress and the executive about what the rules should be. Um, at the end of 2007, we learned from Senator Whitehouse declassifying language on the floor of the Senate um, that, quote, that OLC has held that, quote, an executive order cannot limit a president. There is no constitutional requirement for a president to issue a new executive order whenever he wishes to depart from the terms of a previous executive order rather than violate an executive order 
the president has instead modified it or waived it. And he was talking about EO 12333. So in other words, even EO 12333, which are supposed to be the rules that everyone has agreed that the executive branch will follow, um, sometime in the early part of the Bush administration, they wrote an OLC memo that said, we can pixie dust even our own rules anytime we want to without telling you that we did so. So it's not clear that a statute would actually be the final word or even that an executive order is actually what's happening is what your point is. Right. So anarchy and chaos. All right, we're going to move to questions, but Laura wanted to jump in and say something yeah. fast. So I was actually going to mention Senator Whitehouse's statement in 2007 oh, okay. in response. Laura and I are the only people who talk about but, this. No, no, no. I, I also want to respond to Ben just quickly. So, yes. so I, we concur uh, um, about uh, foreign persons that the issue is one of policy, not of constitutional measures, because the right of the people to be secure in their person's papers and effects, it's the people referred to that sign the Constitution, which is why Rehnquist said that non-U.S. citizens without a substantial connection to the U.S. based overseas don't have Fourth Amendment rights. So, but as a policy matter, we might want to be thinking very carefully before the NSA is, you know, mimicking LinkedIn or uh, Yahoo or Google overseas and using that to gather information and the impact that has and Prism and Upstream Collection have on our cloud computing industry and on our economic security. So there might be other reasons that you want to be a little bit more circumspect about collection of international information overseas and the way you go about it. But the solution to figuring that out is to ensure sure that our national security infrastructure has entities like commerce and treasury represented even down at a programmatic level. It's not a constitutional question with regard to the collection of that information. Congress's authority to legislate is always a constitutional question, and the limitations here on Congress's authority are separation of powers limitations as, you know, the limitations with res their respect to authorize or have Fourth Amendment, you know, components. But the, 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 the fundamental... The, the fundamental question when Congress tries to migrate FISA overseas is when does it run into Article 2? And also, what are the limits of, of its power you know, to, to create Article 3 jurisdiction for a whole lot of questions of overseas um, and the, you know, overseas collection? And those are, those are untested and uncharted waters. And, and we should not, without a very specific sense of what the policy objective that you're trying to achieve is, it seems to me premature to, to, uh, you know, to sweep those off the table. So, so no one would say that the NSA can't collect on Vladimir Putin. That would never pass Congress. No one, that, that's not even... But they might say Merkel. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, no, he could, he could, he could go after whoever he wants. Over, overseas, the, the main issue here is there is a major, massive, ongoing constitutional problem with the uh, treatment of U.S. person data, a vast amount of it. If you want, so I, I will stand up for foreigners here a little bit. We did sign um, this treaty, the uh, Interna International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR, which is basically the treaty that embodies the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yep. It's the supreme law of the land, um, ratified by Congress. Co there is a provision in there that talks about privacy for all persons. Yep. It can't be arbitrary or unlawful. Um, Congress does have the ability to legislate what that means. So look, I, I mean, hmm. the, I, the, every single country that signed and ratified the ICCPR had an active intelligence service 
collecting and violating people's privacy at the time that they signed it. Clearly, this was not meant to, 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 to deal with foreign espionage. Now, I have no problem with the idea, as Laura says, that as a policy matter, you might say, and in fact, the president did this in January, said, you know, we're going to issue PDD, PPD 28 that, that talks about respecting the privacy rights of, of people overseas. And I have no problem that I, with the idea that as a prudential matter, you might limit your collection in response to, um, you know, both diplomatic and social and moral concerns about um, the effects that it might have overseas. That is not the same thing as a legislative regime. So let me bring this down to brass tacks in a fashion that does not involve Vladimir Putin, um, but that does involve bulk collection, and that gives me a good opportunity to flack Shane Harris's excellent new book on cybersecurity, which is called At War. Um, and the first chapter of this book is about US cyber operations during the surge in Iraq. And basically what Shane reports um, is that the NSA went into Iraq during the, in the, at the outset of the surge and essentially took over the entire Iraqi communications grid um, so that it had access to the contents and metadata of literally every communication taking place in the entire country of Iraq. And that it used those communications for all sorts of target generation uh, to inject malware all over the, uh, you know, at people's cell phones that enabled them to locate people. Um, and Petraeus, I didn't really know this, but Petraeus had, you know, has publicly called this a game-changing uh, component of why the surge was effective. And so here's my question. Should all that be subject to legislative regulation? Is that stuff that you want done under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act? It's not only a straw man, but you're presuming as well that Petraeus is correct when he says the surge works. Well, no, no, so, 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 so hang on a second. I mean, I, I have no, no particular opinion about Iraqi politics or the merits of the surge, but my question is, why is it a straw man? So, but, so Ben, you know, I acknowledge as well that you no, have an um, Article II Commander-in-Chief right. <laughs> Commander Authority, uh, and where congressional action might interfere with that, then you're on questionable congressional ground. But in 1978, we have FISA for electronic surveillance. In 1974, we have physical searches. We have 1998, pen register, trap and trace. It's expanded, and then to tangible goods and business records. Uh, there are forms of communication we have now that they did not have in 1978 that have serious Fourth Amendment consequences for domestic United States persons' privacy. Surely you would acknowledge, despite your status view, that if you accept the 78 FISA, if you accept pen register trap and trace, if you accept these updates for technologies, that it's potentially within Congress's power to regulate with significant Fourth Amendment implications where you have these new technologies that didn't even exist at the time FISA was being Right. right wait, wait, we are being yanked off the stage. I have failed as a moderator because there's no time for questions, but Julian is over there giving me the throat cutting. And so I'm afraid that Laura gets the last word. Sorry, Ben. No Thank worries. you very much for listening to us today. And uh, enjoy the rest of the presentation.